Welcome to the Best of St. Joseph Radio, a program that for more than 30 years has sought out eloquent speakers throughout the world to help explain, clarify, and evangelize the Catholic faith. People who seek to put Christ first in their lives, living the Father's will, witnessing to His grace, love, and forgiveness. Now with the aid of technology, we are able to reach the four corners of the world with the gospel message, where Christ Himself did say, those who have ears ought to hear. Brothers and sisters, sit back, relax, and open your ears and heart to the good news on the best of St. Joseph Radio Presents. of St. Paul's Letters to America. I'm uh, your host for this program, Ray Gerard, and with me, I have a co-host by the name of Mr. Bob Hennekes. Bob, how are you? Wonderful this morning, Ray. How about you? I'm doing good. So we're here again uh, because um, we like to do this this program called St. Paul's Letters to America. And we kind of uh, bat around this idea of like, well, what if St. Paul were alive today? And what if he took a look at America? God help us. He took a look at America and said, you know what? I'm going to write a letter to these people. And I'm going to tell them something that I think, you know, they could uh, they could uh, stand to hear and perhaps benefit from. And so, you know, we asked the question, well, if that was the case, what would he tell us? And if you're wondering the same sort of thing, guess what? Uh, you can't, you've come to a good place because we're going to tell you that. And the reason we can tell you that it's very simple. Uh, the things that, it, that St. Paul wrote and talked about 2,000 years ago uh, are the same things he would write and talk about today. We're not making this stuff up. We can say that St. Paul would tell America certain things because what he said before was true, and it doesn't change. It doesn't change from place to place. It doesn't change from time to time. And so then, well, what if, you know, the, these things that St. Paul wrote and talked about— um, you know, how would they apply today to us? And so that's also what we get into a good bit on this on this program. And we usually relate it to a particular event that's going on uh, in the country. And so the event that we're going to be talking about today is uh, involves schools and kids. And our title for our program this time is the new Ho- the new homeless. The new homeless. Why? Well, for example, in Fairfax County, Virginia, there was a recent event uh, where a particular mother was very upset. Uh, she's got some kids in the local high school, and um, they've approved certain books uh, for the kids to have access to. And this mother was upset because there are really blatant descriptions of sexual acts. And they're uh, described with approval in these two books. And, okay, well, a lot of people think, well, that, you know, a lot of people might agree with that, a lot of people might not agree with that. But what she's really raising uh, a problem with, or raising a discussion over, is um, the fact that they involve pedophilia. They involve uh, acts between grown men and young boys. Um, That's criminal stuff. Um, they, uh, 
you know, they involve some very, you know, grotesque things. And uh, so she's like, well, you know, this really isn't literature. Um, but nevertheless, uh, so anyways, when she first raised her complaint last September, um, the schools took the these books off the shelves and they submitted them to two committees. Uh, these committees reviewed the books and these committees were made up of different people, school administrators and I guess students and outside personnel, what have you. And they approved them. And so they came back onto the onto the list. Um, so that's going on in, in Fairfax County. You had another recent just incident uh, this week and with the Connecticut school where kids uh, were given a, a pizza assignment. These kids were not high school. They're a little younger. They're in eighth grade. They were given a pizza assignment, and they were supposed to, I guess, color a drawing uh, about what their favorite color. It sounds like something you do with a second or third grade. But anyways, color some kind of drawing about a pizza and how the pizza would look, you know, what their favorite toppings would be. Okay. <laughs> okay. You, other than, okay, well, well, that's kind of a waste of time. I mean, but, what you know, what's so terrible about that? Well, there was sort of like this key to this puzzle. And it was like, well, okay, well, this topping means this, and this topping means that. These things were uh, basically metaphors for, I mean, the various toppings, cheese, olives, et cetera, uh, had their own specific sexual activities that they were designated with. Oh, dear Lord. And so you could, you know, make a pizza based on, you know, what you— happen to like or dislike. Um, and uh, the school quickly removed that, said it was a mistake. They didn't mean to do it. But, you know, uh, a lot of people are not so sure about that. Uh, but the schools, you know, I mean, take them at their word. It was a mistake. But anyways, um, there's a bunch of this sort of thing going on. Because even if it was in there by mistake, the, the, there was a coordinator at this Connecticut school, coordinator for, I guess, health and wellness or something of that sort, and uh, he said, well, I came across this back in June when we were reviewing the curriculum, and I, hap- and I just forgot to remove it. Well, even if that is so, and again, like I said, we give them the benefit of the doubt. I mean, assume they're telling the truth. Why not? Um, even if that was so, why was it who, – who, you know, who came up with the idea to put it into the curriculum in the first place? You know, so it's, it's, it's indicative of – you know, something that's kind of going on in the country um, with regard to kids in our schools. And, for example, there's a new group called the, the Undercover Mothers. And they're undercover, they're covert, because they don't want to be known. They want to keep their names secret. And they're, uh, they're uh, organizing themselves to find out what is going on in these schools. And they're doing this surreptitiously and trying to find these things out and then report on it and bring it, and bring these things to light. Why is there a need for this group to actually do that sort of thing? I mean, wouldn't schools just share with the parents, you know, what they're planning to teach? Why, is, why do you got to go, you know, in, in a covert way to try to find out? Well, not only are they trying to keep it from the parents, but... For example, there's an actual contract. And these are private schools. These are posh. These mothers are organized to try to find out what's going on in these private schools. You know, posh, upper-class schools where people are paying a lot of money to send their kids there. And these schools, for example, will have contracts. 
that provide penalties. And there's one contract that says specifically um, that if any family member, not a student, but a family member engages in, and I'm reading right from the contract, engages in behavior, communication, or interactions off campus. So now we're going to restrict your private lives. That shows, quote, disagreement with the school's policies. If you off campus say or do something, you communicate, you engage in communication which disagrees with what we're doing. Sounds kind of all very authoritative, uh, to put it mildly. Um, then the school has the right to place restrictions on the activities of those people at the school or to, quote, void an executed enrollment contract, kick, you know, kick a kid out. So if you say the wrong thing off campus or you're the parent of If you disagree with the school's disagree, policies, yeah. they can toss you for simply stating your opinion off campus okay. in, a, in a dinner with some friends and it gets back to the school. They have the right to toss your child. Oh, well, yeah, ostensibly sure, yeah. I mean, under the contract, that's what they've got the right to do. <laughs> it's uh, So, anyways, why do we bring all this up? So the question is, well, you know, what is the role, you know, what, what is the role of children? Maybe, uh, you know, more importantly, what is our role as adults toward children? What are we to think of children? Uh, just in general. Um, do we need to protect them? Do we not protect them? Whose role is it? You know, so, I mean, what is the value of, of children? You know, just just children in general. And what would uh, the principles of our Catholic faith have um, to help us in terms of how we look at children? Um, so, anyways, uh, to, to to look at this, what we're going to do is we're going to uh, basically um, always use a letter from St. Paul to, to help us with that. And so the, um, the letter that we have this time says this. If only the Spirit of God dwells in you, you will become children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. I say then... Live by the Spirit, so that you may belong to another and to the one who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. Now, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Let us, therefore, follow the Spirit. Now, nice. of course, when Paul, St. Paul is talking about children of God, he's not necessarily talking about young people. He's talking about everybody. So how does this relate to children? Well, we're going we're to get into that. And, and, and it's pretty simple. I mean, if you go down this list that St. Paul uh, gives for people who would be following the Spirit— be living in the Spirit, people who would be children of God, you'll find that, well, basically, children easily check these boxes. Um, and they do it sort of naturally without, without effort. Uh, we might struggle a lot with 
you know, having patience towards another person or, you know, um, just, you know, having, you know, just, just having gentleness or faithfulness. Kids, kids are loving, trusting, uh, innocent, you know, by nature without even trying. It is, yeah, it, was, it was no less than Christ who said, uh, amen, amen, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Christ is talking about young people. Unless you become like young people, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What's he talking about? And the thing is, when you look at what's going on in some of these schools, you could easily say that they're trying to um, make kids like adults. When, in fact, you know, Christ is saying, well, we have to be more like kids. And so the three, there are three basic, I think, angles that we're going to examine this whole question under. One is innocence, one is parental love, and one is responsibility. And it's interesting because these three uh, categories that we've picked relate to a number of things. There's a, there's a harmony uh, with the theological virtues. There's, there's a correspondence with the actual life of a person. Uh, there's a correspondence with the relationships that we have in our life. Let me explain. Innocence. Well, that concerns uh, the individual. It's, a, it's, it's something that an individual person has or doesn't have. Uh, parental, and I think that's a major thing of what Christ was talking about when he said you have to be like children. Innocence, purity, purity. Uh, I mean, virtue. I mean, that's something we don't, I think, spend a lot of time examining ourselves over these days or hearing much about these days. And if you look at little kids, Ray, to me, even they're so pure that even when something happens that's bad to try to reverse that, they still are pure. They are now confused. They don't leap right. over anything else. They just right. are confused that their concept that's in their head, that everything is pure, everything is wonderful, uh, they're, they're so innocent and so beautiful, they're conflicted. They don't understand why they something understand. goes against this. They're so wonderful to be around. They're, they're just beautiful. There's a, there's a psychological study that uh, we were going to uh, perhaps make reference to later, but that um, was a good time. Um, there's a there's a psychological study that was dealing with, you know, kids who suffer sexual abuse as a child, and they described it as a betrayal of trust. The reason why it is so traumatizing for a child is because they trust the adult. I mean, if it's a situation of incest or something of that nature, they will trust the adult. Implicitly, This is someone who's close to them. This is someone in their family. And then they're used for that kind of purpose, and they don't understand. Just like you're saying, they don't understand. They can't. They, the problem is that they, according to this, um, this study, they don't ascribe bad motivations to the other person. They're so willing to believe that all people are good that they don't ascribe bad motivations to those people. And so because they don't see bad in other people, 
they then turn it inward and say, well, this is happening because maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe right. something I'm doing wrong. Right. This is what goes on with the child, and this is why it's so traumatizing. It's a betrayal of trust that hits so deeply. And that's, but, it just, but, but that whole situation describes or tells us a lot about a child and how they think and how they are. They believe that there's good in people. How different that is than a lot of adults. Maybe that's, of course, again, that brings us back to Christ telling us we've got to be like children. So anyways, innocence is one, uh, is one category. Another is parental love. And that tells us that there's another relationship there. So the first one, innocence, it's, you know, our relationship with ourself. The second one, parental love, deals with our relationship with other people. So it's at the beginning, it, it deals with our relationships with people in our family. If we're feeling parental love in our family, uh, and then do we, we return that love? Uh, but then once you learn that, in a school, if you will, that is the family, that it is the home for a young person. You can then use that lesson and apply that to other people that you meet in your life. And by contrast, if you never learn that lesson, if you never feel that love as a child in your family, and you don't learn that lesson, then you grow up with psychological issues and difficulties in how you deal with other people. And there are studies uh, that we could refer to if we have the time that show this and that, that demonstrate this scientifically, mathematically. I mean, it's, it's, it's there. There's no doubt, Ray, and it just makes sense. If you talk or you've ever been around someone that didn't experience love as a child, they're searching for it the rest of their life. They, they know that that's supposed to be in them, that that's intrinsic, and they didn't find it where most of us do. And I, I feel very lucky to be one of those people that that felt that love so generously from my family as a child, if someone doesn't find that, they're going to spend the rest of their life searching for that love and in weird and unusual and difficult places. And it's it's just traumatic. Um, each one of us needs that. And so if it's provided by the home, we can then go on and develop and be useful and helpful and take care of others. And if we don't, we really struggle with our relationships and anything else because we're still constantly looking for that basis of love. And it may not be in the rest of the world like it is with a parent or a brother or sister. Yeah. And, I mean, that's, it's it's so true. It is it is so true. And that's why it's so important that, you know, children experience this in the family at a young age. Um, the last category, the third category, um, is responsibility. And by that I mean, what is our responsibility toward children? What are we supposed to do in terms of how we treat children? And there's a responsibility there. And what is, from a Catholic viewpoint, um, that responsibility? What should that responsibility be? Well, I think it's fair, completely fair to say, responsibility toward children is kind of the same as it is towards anybody else, which is to lead people to God. The only important thing is whether or not we're helping people get to heaven. That is the only important thing in any of our lives. I mean, you can talk about any other thing that you want. And if it deals with something in this world, it's transitory. It's passing. It won't have eternal importance. There's only one thing that has eternal importance, our soul and our salvation or our damnation of it. 
And so are we helping people with that ultimate question or not? And when we make decisions about how we treat kids in schools or anywhere else, do we have that in mind? Are we thinking of that when we're making these decisions? And so is it, is it not totally proper to say, you know, if we're going to look at children through a Catholic lens, you know, at least in terms of responsibility and how we treat them, my goodness, we ought to have that in mind. Ray, one of the one of the neat things that at the school I go to dealing with children, although they're older children, but they're still children. One of the things that we always try to keep in mind, including myself as a math and engineering and science teacher, is that our job is to keep teach the kids who Jesus Christ is. And if during that period of time when you have the kids, you teach them a little engineering or physics or chemistry or whatever, you're doing all right. But the first goal in mind has got to be that we teach them who Jesus is and what he did for us. And I, I think you're absolutely right. That's, that's what we are supposed to do is to bring others there in whatever job or whatever part of life we have, whatever our place, our station is in this world. That's what we ought to be doing. Absolutely. So, uh, but these categories, I think they also uh, relate to the course of a life. Innocence, hey, the beginning of your life. Parental love, learning how to love within a family so that you can then learn how to love within a wider context with everybody you meet. Well, that covers the course of our life and how we interact with people everywhere. And then the responsibility to help lead people towards heaven. The end of our life, our salvation or not. Um, you know, so I think these these categories then um, constitute like a really a good and fair and comprehensive way of looking at this. And we could even, you know, justify them even more, but we're not going to spend too much time doing that. But, you know, they relate to truth, beauty, and goodness. Innocence, that's beauty. Love, that's goodness. Uh, you know, God and leading people to heaven, that's, that is the ultimate truth. Uh, and then it relates to the theological virtues of hope, charity, and, uh, and faith as well. So anyways, uh, let's not dwell on the categories, and let's, let's get into like, what we're talking about. So this first category, innocence, purity. Um, is childhood innocence kind of a universal thing? Um, is it something that we ought to um, respect and appreciate? Well, there's a guy who wrote a song called The End of the Innocence. His name is Don Henley. The song came out in mm -hmm. 1989. It's, uh, let's see if it can make this work. Play just a little little piece of it. Um, see if it can work. So that song may be familiar to, to a lot of people. But, uh, you know, those lyrics. Remember when the days were long and rolled beneath a deep blue sky. I mean, that, you know, didn't have a care in the world. I mean, that's, that's, that's the, the life of a kid. 
with mommy and daddy standing by. I mean, they're to protect you. They take care of everything. You don't have any worries, you know, but then happily ever after fails instead he had to fly. I mean, it's a sad thing, um, but it's, but he's describing, he's describing the innocence of childhood. And, you know, he's, he can be making a commentary as well that, you know, um, that innocence um, fails and that's a sad thing. That's a bad thing, which gets right back to Christ saying you have to become like children. You know, I mean, it's a universal kind of experience that there's a happiness in a childhood family situation where you're protected, where you're secure, you know, where you know somebody's standing by and taking care of these things for you. You know, there's a there's a love there. There's so it's this, you know, it's this this innocence. And he's very sad, you know, if there's the end of that innocence. It's a universal human, you know, situation. Your mother, your father. There's a connection. There's a deep connection there. And if they're good and kind and loving, you know, that's that's an idyllic situation. So. You know, so what is so good about that? What is what is so good? What is what does that mean? What is so good about that situation? I mean, why are we supposed to be innocent? Why are we supposed to be pure? Why is that something to be, you know, uh, adored or admired? I mean, why is Christ saying, "Hey, you know, you've got to, you know, um, you've got to be like children"? Well, well there, you go ahead. So, to me, Ray, the, the answer to that question is very clear. We are to be like God, and God is loving and caring and doesn't want bad to happen and wants nothing but the best for us in each way. If, if we can, whatever question we ask, whatever it is that we're trying to do, if we can ask ourselves, what is it that God wants? What is it that Christ showed us? What is it that he shows us in each moment of the Scripture? That's exactly it. That's that's who God is. And he wants us to be like that. He wants us to be like children because at the, that's the innocence that God has. In fact, so much so that he died on the cross for us. He he went ahead and gave up his life for us. It's it's absolutely beautiful. Well, yeah, as a matter of fact, and you know, you, you see this the same kind of idea repeated throughout the scriptures. For example, uh in Ephesians, Saint Paul talks about being chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy without blemish. What he's talking about is God planning, designing to, you know, create humanity before the foundation of the world. He's going to create this humanity and it's going to be holy and without blemish. And then in order to go back, you know, and that's, that's how we're created. That's our origin. Why? Because as St. Paul talks about in that, that, same, uh, that same letter, you know, he wants us to be part of his family. He's destined us for adoption to himself. He wants us to join and be united with him. And if you're going to be united with God, you've got to be pure. Otherwise, it's going to be like oil and water. It's not going to mix. It's not going to be able to, to, to stay together. You'll see it again, for example, Jesus himself, you know, in the Gospel of Matthew talks about, he goes through the Beatitudes. 
You know, the, the famous, mm. that famous chapter in Matthew where, you know, there's this long uh, discussion by Christ. The Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. And he goes through all these things about, you know, what it would be like for the kingdom. You know, what are the, what are, what are the attributes of the kingdom of heaven that is really here with us now? On, 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 it's here now. We don't have to wait for it. Well, these are the Beatitudes. And at the very end, the very last verse in that, in that chapter from Matthew, so be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfect. You got to be perfect. Nobody can be. You can't be perfect. Nobody can be perfect. What's he talking about? I mean, how are we supposed to be perfect? Well, okay. That's where, I think that's where forgiveness and mercy comes in. But he's exhorting you, he's exhorting all of us to be the very best of ourselves. You know, to be meek, to be humble, uh, to be perns poor in spirit and yearning for God, to be this, to be that. You know, I mean, this, this, is the same, uh, this is the same sermon where, you know, he tells you to turn the other cheek, you know, to, to love your enemies, all of that. That's what we should strive for. This is the very best. This is purity. This is, this is the Catholic model that has been modeled for us by so many of the saints. okay. They weren't perfect either. But you take a woman like Mother Teresa, for example. I mean, and she could just affect people by her willingness to do anything for anybody, to suffer any slight and not have it bother her. I mean, that, you know, it's, it may not be perfect, but she's getting closer to perfection. Awful close. <laughs> pretty close to perfection and certainly a lot closer than a lot of us. So... Why not be exhorted to try to do the same thing? This is purity. And this is something that, you know, is easy. I mean, you know, these fruits of the Holy Spirit that St. Paul talks about, you know, gentleness, patience, kindness, all of those things. Well, guess what? You do those things when you're acting like Mother Teresa, when you're trying to be perfect, when you have purity of heart. And for those of us who are innocent, it's, it's a lot easier. I mean, for example, Michael Jackson said, in their innocence, very young children know themselves to be light and love. They know themselves to be light and love. If we allow them, listen to this, if we allow them, they can teach us to see ourselves the same way. Oh, boy, he sounds an awful lot like that passage, you know, from, from the Gospel of Matthew when, when Jesus tells us, be like children. I mean, one of those, one of those lists that, that uh, you know, that, that, um, that St. Paul gives us is to, uh, is to have peace. One of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is peace. Uh, there's an American uh, epic fantasy writer named Patrick uh, Rothfuss who wrote, The day we fret about the future is the day we lead our childhood behind. This is innocence. This is purity. You don't worry about things. You've got daddy and mommy standing by, and life is like, you know, a blue sky with white puffy clouds rolling by. You know, we don't have worries. That's, that's innocence. And, you know, if we have true faith in God, that God will provide, that God will take care of what we need, that we're supposed to go out uh, and preach the gospel without 
clothes on our back or worrying about anything as he, as he exhorted the apostles to. If we have that kind of faith, then nothing does trouble us. We're not troubled at all. That's innocence. That's true faith in God. Uh, you know, these, you know, I mean, these things, they go together. I mean, we've got, you've got Jesus agreeing with Michael Jackson. I mean, you, you know, this is, I mean, there's a good chance here that what we're on to is, in fact, the truth. And it's a truth that doesn't change over time. And if we're not respecting that or giving that, you know, giving this due consideration, giving due consideration for the innocence of the children, then we might, we might be going astray. We might not be in line with something that is universally true. The innocence that every kid experiences, I mean, if Don Henley's experience was indicative of other people's, that experience that we, that we all have or hopefully should have, a lot of people don't have. They don't have that kind of childhood, but they should. You know, you know, if we're not allowing for that or we're interrupting that, well, then there might be something else that, you know, that we might want to recall, which is something else from the gospel of Matthew, something else that, that Jesus happened to say where he talked about, you know, if, if you poison one of, you know, one of these little children, be better if you'd be like if you had a, or better if you had a millstone hung around your neck and thrown into the sea. I mean, innocence, it's purity. It's something that we should preserve. It's not going we're not going to be able to preserve it forever. People have become adults and they'll lose that childhood innocence. But, you know, we should do what we can, should we not, um, to try to help protect it because it is the purity to which we're all going to expire aspire to have when we expire that's all you know if we're gonna if we're gonna ever get to heaven so well Ray when 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 one of us adults tries to figure out what to do we try to figure out how to succeed and we measure our worth and our value on claiming that success we decide we want to go to a particular college or get a particular job or make a billion dollars or be the head of a, a company or whatever that is, and we measure ourselves with that success. When we are God's children, we measure our success as simply loving God. No one else interferes with that. It's all under our control. We get to choose whether we love God and want to be with him or not. And it is simply that easy. Whereas making a billion dollars is hard. It's, it's not based on just us. It's based on many other factors, luck and others. But if all we're doing is to be innocent and to follow our Lord and Savior, that's something that we can succeed in and nobody else can do anything about. I, it is absolutely what we all ought to be doing. And we all get diverted because of our humanity that wants something other than that. We, Adam and Eve, wanted to be like God, so they ate the fruit in the garden. We want to be big, successful people and be impressive and have folks say, oh, when they see your house and your car and your bank account. If we really, truly would just follow God, we wouldn't be worried about any of those things. We would have that exact innocence that you're discussing. 
That's how God wants us to be. You bet. That's how God wants us to be. Um, so innocence, purity, uh, it's what we're called uh, to try to, to live with as much as we can. What about parental love? So when schools are making decisions and so forth, isn't it better if schools work with parents, parents work with schools, the parents are involved? Is there anything from a Catholic perspective that can help us understand that? Well, again, how about just looking for things that are true across the board. You know, if, if, if people experience these same things, no matter what your religion, um, no matter where you, you know, what part of the world you grew up in, um, then perhaps we're on to something that is in fact true. Um, and if it agrees with the Catholic faith, if it agrees with what St. Paul happens to write, uh, I think we can start feeling pretty good about the fact that, you know, hey, we, sh- we, should, we should pay attention to these things. Um, there's a story, this is on, this comes from Quora.com, the story by a person, uh, Kakoli Singa, and a lot of the um, entries on this particular uh, chain and this website, chain of, of posts on this website, uh, were from people from India. And uh, so this, uh, so I'm, uh, anyways, uh, this woman writes a story about a father who stopped at a balloon cellar. There are many colorful balloons uh, floating in midair, uh, caught the attention of this father's child. And, you know, pointing upwards, the child lurched toward a bright blue balloon, and her father bought it for her. And, you know, she was so happy. And then the child, uh, as, as you might expect, you know, went on and uh, holding this balloon, clutching this balloon. But as you might expect, uh, you know, you could have a problem. The father, again, trying to do something nice for the child, bought her some ice cream. She went to grab the ice cream with both hands. She let go of the balloon. And now all of a sudden the child was terribly distraught. So the father tells his daughter, don't worry, my dear. This balloon, he will find the way home on his own. The little child's eyes widened. Really, she asked. Uh, Really, he promised. Once home, she waited for the balloon to return. Each time the doorbell rang, she hoped that the blue balloon had returned. When will it come, Papa? When will it come? Patience, my dear. It's the biggest virtue, he told her. Well, the next day in the morning, something mysteriously, mysteriously peeped out of the curtains. The child felt curious. Reaching for the window, she pushed the curtains aside. And hiding behind the thick curtains was a blue balloon. Grabbing his string, she ran to her father. Father, Papa, look. The blue balloon found us. Now, why that story? Um, Well, doesn't it sort of like, I mean, doesn't it tug at the heart of like everybody who hears that? Can't everybody relate to that kind of a story? It would be my suspicion that this person um, was not Catholic probably not even Christian. Many of the other posts and entries I saw in this the same chain of posts, you know, were people who, you know, indicated that, you know, they were not of, of a Christian religion. And, but, you know, I mean, it's this, it's this universal love that a child can feel 
uh, it's this this implicit trust that she can place in her parent, her father, and then that you know that love is is returned and felt so deeply by the father. I mean, it's 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 uh, I guess in a word, natural, is it not? And of course, it's not. This is not something relegated to a father. Uh, a mother's love is intense. You know, we could. You know, there's um, there's actually scientific studies. Get a load of this one. Dealing with a mother's love. Uh, after giving birth, what some researchers found was that the amygdala increases in activity after giving birth. It's some kind of region in the brain. It's it's a region that is a memory processor. It controls reactions such as anxiety and fears. And so when a mother gives birth, she will be hypersensitive to all the baby's needs. And when she provides for the baby, she feels satisfied. When there's anything that's going to potentially harm the baby, she feels it even more so. They measured, I think they did brain scans or something, I didn't know exactly, you know, they measured this, that the activity, like, increases after giving birth for some reason. Here's another one. This was uh, University of California, Berkeley, 2016, a neuroimaging study beginning in the preschool period uh, through school age and early adolescence. And so they did these neural imaging. And um, they were trying to build on some well-established anima, animal data demonstrating the effects of early, early maternal Support, And what they found in humans was that the hippocampal volume, another, I guess, portion of the brain, hippocampal volume increased faster for those with higher levels of preschool maternity support. The brain capacity, the brain capability of children with preschool maternal support increased more than people who didn't have that. They measured it. They measured it. And it, it, besides that, it intrinsically makes sense. If you are a child who has felt that love, that protection, that kind of love, you can then go off and do many other things because you're no longer searching for that love. That, that, that love itself... When you have that, that allows you to go off and do good and wonderful things. And if not, you're sort of going to be stuck there trying to trying to find that someplace. As, as a parent, not only are you predestined by our hormones to do those right things, it is a wonderful thing for the good of the child to, oh. to allow them to have a foundation where they can go off and feel good about themselves and, and feel right about themselves and therefore want to do other good things for other people. There's a theory in psychology called the attachment theory where kids, uh, they need to attach, especially at a young age, when there's this world around them and they, they're not in control of it themselves and they're vulnerable and they depend on others, they need to attach to something. So they attach to their parents. And if these studies are correct that, you know, hey, the, the brain of the mother actually, you know, increases in a certain respect um, with regard to caring for the child, you know, to, to, it's fair to say, I guess, we're hardwired. To, mothers are hardwired to love and care for the children. They found that the, the perception of parental love or rejection accounts for 26% of a child's psychological adjustment. And 
21% of an adult's psychological adjustment. Harvard did a study back in 1938 with 268 Harvard students, including John F. Kennedy, and they found that acceptance, nurture, and parental love were the best predictors of future success. Harvard did a study in the 1950s, the Harvard Mastery of Stress Study, and they found that people who did not experience parental love were more than twice as likely to develop physical illnesses 35 years later. Uh, There's a recent Harvard study, the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard did a study, and what they found was that the best predictor of people who fared best in life were kids who had parents who fell into an authoritative uh, mode. An authoritative mode. This is, this is a, a classification of parents who had high warmth and high discipline for the children. And there are other categories. You know, permissive uh, parents had low discipline but high warmth. And what they found across the various categories that they studied was that parental warmth or love seemed to be, I'm quoting from this, quoting from this article, seemed to be the dominant factor. <laughs> love. I mean, they're, they're measuring this. And by contrast, you know, kids who don't experience that, you know, I could describe, you know, studies and reports that deal with consequences that people have in work. There's later in life, uh, people who suffer neglect or abuse as a child, they don't have employment situations that are as good. They can't function with other people as well. People that suffer childhood neglect. Uh, there's, a, there's a group, the Child Welfare Information Gateway, and uh, they published uh, some findings and so forth. They found that child maltreatment has been linked to a higher, higher risk for a wide range of long-term future health problems, diabetes, lung disease, it's a heart, it's a high blood pressure, et cetera, et cetera. There's a long list here, but, you know, I mean, we're running short on time. Um, there's a study, Stockton University out of uh, New Jersey, that talks about all the psychological problems that kids have if they suffer mistreatment or abuse. You know, they may never have the opportunity to address their own needs or feelings or to uh, develop the basic life skills you know, they are completely dependent upon the adult, adults entrusted to care for them, and that can leave them very vulnerable. Children may not understand. Uh, yeah, we talked about this. We talked about this earlier. Um, but there's a host of psychological problems that, that kids can suffer, including depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress, disassociation, dissociation, personality, eating disorders, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, if you have an experience, parental love, um, there are all these benefits the kids experience. And if you don't, um, by consequence, you have a lot of problems that you experience. You know, and I, when you're considering parental love, you know, the, the one person that you have to think about, of course, from a Catholic perspective, is Mother Mary. We hold Mary in uh, a very high regard. And for a very good reason. You know, recently I came across uh, this prayer. It's a different kind of rosary. It's based on the seven sorrows of Mary. And there are seven decades, I guess it's improper to call them decades, because there's only seven Hail Marys, and each one is opposed to ten. But uh, they go through the sorrows in the life of Mary. And each one of them points you to sorrow in the life of Christ. And 
one of the sorrows is, for example, when Mary is holding Jesus, the body, the lifeless body of her son, after he's taken down from the cross. And the narrative that went with uh, the version of this Seven Sorrows Rosary that I came across talked about, speculated, what have you, but it seems perfectly legitimate that, that she would think this, talked about her, now that he was dead and his life was over, thinking about the first time she saw him as a newborn baby, looking into his face at that point. Wouldn't a mother recall that sort of thing? And if you meditate on it and pray on it, your heart breaks. That's a mother's love. That's a mother's love. Or the flight to Egypt, you know, and the fear that she would have that around some corner there'd be some soldier sent by Herod whose mission it was to kill her infant son. Uh, I mean, all of these things. Um, And she has that kind of care and love for all of us. And people say that, but it's very true. She is, you know, there's this queen of heaven. She's the mediatrix of graces. She, you know, she has a love for each one of us that we can't comprehend. And it's, I mean, she's allowed... To, to 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 have this, to have these kinds of powers, to be able to feel what's in our our hearts, or to to hear our to hear the prayers of millions of people at the same time, because of a gift, the power that she that she's allowed, you know, by God. But He's allowed it to her, and so she has this tremendous love, and you know, because she was you know conceived without sin, it's a then she feels. I've read someplace that. Her and her son feel humiliations or feel uh, pain more deeply than than we do, because why? Because they're pure, and those kinds of wounds are felt much more deeply um, because they don't have the weaknesses that we do. I mean, it's and it's just. It's just an amazing. I mean, when you think about when you think about maternal love, parental love, um, you know, it's like whether it's scientific or whether it's based in uh, in theology, it's undeniable. There's something special there. There's a special attachment. Whether you look to attachment theory or whether you look to the the catechism, there is. There is something, you know, in the catechism, you know, our parents have a responsibility towards children to bring them up towards, you know, to to loving God. There's something special that is truly there, and we need to respect it. We need to consider it. We need to we need to always be considering, you know, considering it. We need to recall it. it there's something special there, and you know, this, you know, this last, this last, uh, I guess, category that. You know, we we talked about it at the outset, and that we should you know certainly touch on now is this idea of responsibility, you know, towards towards our uh, towards children. You know, it's again, it's you know, it's it's just this. Uh, it's the same responsibility we have to everybody to bring people closer to Christ, Christ, to evangelize, to set people, to help people get to the goal of heaven. But certainly, if we have that responsibility towards everybody else. Then of course, certainly we have it to our children, who are so trusting of us, who are so dependent on us, who are so attached to us. 
um, boy, I mean, you know, if we don't have it anywhere else, we certainly have it there. And so there is something very, very, you know, warming, very, very beautiful, very blessed about a relationship between people uh, and their children. And, you know, uh, I mean, if it if that's if that's so and it is, then my goodness, we've got to try to maybe help other people um, if they don't understand it to try to understand it, so that we can all work together for the benefit of these children. And so, that's just those are just a few reflections on children, our role with children, and and you know and uh, and the beauty. Of children, so we we hope this has been uh, perhaps a little a little interesting. Uh, we hope it's been a little you know provocative. We hope you've enjoyed it. We hope you'll join us again. But like uh, like we always do to end a, a program, we're going to end it with prayer. And to do that, we're going to ask uh, Bob to help us once more. In the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, you give us the wonder of trying to find love. We are born with that in our heart, and we try to find this love. And the parents, the ability of the parents to bring that to us is something that you placed. You found the most beautiful and wonderful woman in the world to be the mother of your son. That parental love, that opportunity to help people come to know who you are, and our responsibility to bring that to each one is absolutely wonderful. It should be a joy to love our children. It should be a joy to lead other people to you. Allow us to find the strength, the love from you to go out and do those things and to bring others to come to know you. That beautiful love that you give us, we can spread unselfishly and allow others to come to follow you and your son. And it is through that son, in the name of that son, who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray these things to you. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the the Son, and of the Holy Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to the Best of St. Joseph Radio Presents. As always, anytime you hear something that speaks to you or know someone that would benefit from today's program, visit our website at www.saintjosephradio.net. Until next time, this is Matt Logeman for St. Joseph Radio Presents. listening to St. Joseph Radio presents from the Rome of the West, St. Louis, Missouri. If you would like to join us in our evangelization efforts, you can order a copy of today's broadcast or any of our past programs by visiting us on our website, stjosephradio.net. That's S-A-I-N-T, josephradio.net. Or call us, 636-447-6000. It's all at your fingertips to help us evangelize the world, bringing the good news of Christ to everyone you meet and change one soul at a time. Thank you for your prayers and support. Until next time, may God bless you and your family. This has been a presentation of St. Joseph Radio Presents. Thank you.